Summertime and the living is <laughs> It's summer. Time to travel to a beautiful location, relax, and enjoy some music. Which apparently is what all of the classical musicians do, because we can't find any to do classical classroom episodes in town. So, we headed to the hills. And lo, we discovered there are these magical musical oases, oasises, whatever, called classical music festivals. Every summer, students, performers, and orchestras spend their supposed time off making yet more music. Each year, a classical classroom is going to highlight a different festival. This year, we traveled to sunny Santa Barbara, California, to the Music Academy of the West. So chill out, hang tin, insert other surfer phrases, and enjoy this classical classroom summer music festival series. Hey listeners, it's your host Asia. So welcome to part one of our summer music festival series, Music Academy of the West edition. Soon you'll be hearing my chat with pianist Jeremy Dink, who is at the festival. But first, a little about the Music Academy of the West Summer Festival itself. It's an eight-week affair, which hosts 140 fellows. That's what they call their student musicians because they're all there on fellowships. And it's cram-packed with classical music luminaries, composers, conductors, musicians, etc., Speaking of luminaries, we got a gaggle of them together to shed some more light on what makes this summer music festival special. And we'll be hearing from them throughout the series. Think of them as your summer music festival spirit guides. Scott Reed is the president and CEO of the Music Academy of the West. Scott has been in the classical music industry for over 20 years, and besides Music Academy of the West, has worked for organizations like the San Francisco Opera. Richie Hawley served as principal clarinet for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and is currently professor of clarinet at the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University here in Houston. Matthew Sino is currently in a master's program at Juilliard where he serves as principal violist, and because he's not busy enough doing those things, he spends his summers at the Music Academy of the West, where he's currently a fellow. Guys, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Hello. hello. Hi, Desha. So um, you guys are in Santa Barbara. Just tell me what the weather is like there right now. It's glorious. It's about 72. The sun is shining. The, oh. the sky looks like uh, the, a few puffy white clouds. Very little humidity. Absolute paradise. The birds are singing. There's a rainbow outside. I mean, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Just Magic me there, please. Um, so, uh, so, Scott, uh, besides tanning, what do you guys do out there at the Music Academy of the West? So it's pretty straightforward in what we do at the Music Academy. We bring the world's greatest young classical musicians, average age of about 23, to uh, Santa Barbara to study for eight weeks with the world's greatest uh, faculty members that join us uh, from all over the world, different conservatories, uh, music schools, orchestras, opera houses. And uh, the idea is that in between school years, uh, our fellows can join us and can focus uh, exclusively on music making, technique, and uh, performance, performing in front of a live audience, which is something that uh, we do quite extensively at the Music Academy. So Matt, as a student, a fellow, 
Is that what draws you to this festival, the, the ability to perform so frequently? Yeah, this is actually my third summer here. And what I really love about the Music Academy of the West is that it's such a, a well-balanced music festival. Yeah. So a typical day here for me is I'll be in the mornings, I have orchestra rehearsal from 9 to 11.30. And then in the afternoons, I'm, I'm, my day is packed with chamber music. I'm playing rehearsals. I have chamber music coachings with the esteemed faculty. I have weekly solo private lessons as well as weekly public master classes. And um, for a student like myself who's at this point in his career and educational growth, it's just so important to be at a music festival where this is the case. So it seems like at this point in your career as a musician, it's really crucial to be able to sort of put yourself out there. And, yeah, absolutely. and in addition to learning from awesome faculty members like Richie. Richie, that's a that's a pretty tall order to kind of be the steward of of creating this learning environment for these fellows. Oh, absolutely. I think I've been inspired by uh, so many performers and, and performances here that you know, I, I know that's the case for many other faculty members and staff that they, they grow as a part of this music festival. What is, uh, to me, remarkable uh, about this music festival, as opposed to some of the others, is that you have a very small faculty and a very small roster of visiting artists, though they're the world's greatest, and they're all working together. And there's a synergy that happens yeah. where you, you learn about other parts of the business. Um, so it's kind of like a, a holistic learning experience, really, is what I'm hearing. It's not just learning how to, how to play with greater clarity or, or emotion. It's, it's, it's actually learning how to share with others and to play with others and to s the whole the whole thing the the fellows here learn how to be performers they learn how to be the next generation of classical musicians that are going to keep this art alive and bring it to the next level and and how to be rock stars how to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business and someone like Matt he picks up on what works and what doesn't and I shared a concert with him and you know he's got stage presence so uh, I can look over at him, he looks over at me, and there are some moments, I, if I recall, where we didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> Keeping it fresh. <laughs> yeah, we kept it fresh, but it's where... And then where... you guys stood up and played with your backs t together and wailed on your instruments, is that... That's basically it, yeah. and then, you know, he slammed his viola down and, you know, like... <laughs> there was a little fire, yeah. yeah. It was good. <laughs> so, Scott, uh, the supportive community there in um, Santa Barbara seems to play a big role in making this festival successful too, which seems like a good thing since you have all of these classical music rock stars that need to perform in front of people. Yeah, it's very immersive uh, in the sense of the relationship between uh, our fellows and the faculty members, but also the community. That's a very special and key component of our program to get our fellows on stage performing in front of a live, enthusiastic, full audience as much as possible. So the audience involvement in our program is really key to the success and to the fellows' experience. All right, thanks, guys. We look forward to hearing more from you throughout this series. And uh, listeners, I'm just going to take this brief opportunity to remind you to subscribe to us, rate us, and review us on iTunes because um, you want to, really, and you just haven't done it yet.
So now on to our first interview for the Music Academy of the West series with pianist Jeremy Dank. Among his many awards, he has been the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship, so he's a real genius. Uh, he soloed with orchestras all over the U.S. and the world. This season has included a 14-city recital tour of the U.S., among many, many other things that he's done. He's also a librettist and a writer whose pieces have appeared in publications like The New Yorker and The Guardian. Jeremy Dank, welcome to The Classical Classroom. It's a pleasure. So tell us what you are doing uh, at the Summer Festival at the Music Academy of the West. <laughs> well, it's a good question. I'm, I, it's a combination of things. I'm performing a little bit. I played a recital and I played uh, Mozart piano quartet with some of the, uh, I shouldn't call them kids, uh, their fellows, the students here. Uh -huh. But mostly I'm sitting with uh, the pianists, and I think there are seven of them. I'm sitting with them and giving them private lessons and mm -hmm trying to figure them out and they're trying to figure me out and and or, you know we're just talking about music. You know I just finished with a a guy a 21 year old who's playing the last Beethoven sonata, you know the most profound and sort of meditative beyond time kind of piece you can imagine and I'm trying to uh explain that to someone who's 21. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fun. Which yeah. is fun. But uh, but also kind of impossible. <laughs> We're doing our best. Hey, yeah, you got to do what you can do. Um, mm -hmm. So, so tell me about the the program that you recently played. What was what was it called, and um, what composers were you covering in it? Well, recently I was doing I've been doing a program that uh, has a sort of normal beginning and end and a very unusual middle. Uh, mm -hmm. And the middle is a set of eight pieces, which are ragtimes, precursors to ragtime. Homages to ragtime, satires of ragtime, and in general, kind of anything that I can find mm -hmm. that expresses the wit and joy of syncopation in <laughs> music. And uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask, can you explain syncopation to the listeners? Oh, I can. I, can. <laughs> uh, I figured. <laughs> generally, you have a measure with a certain number of beats. Let's say you have a 4 4 measure mm -hmm. one, two, three, four. And a syncopation is a note that comes against one of the strong beats. One ah. and two, three, or one, two, three, four. You know, we're used to hearing it so much right now because, you know, the vast majority of popular music now has an accent on the two and the four. Hmm. The syncopation's built in. It's one of these things, syncopation is a way to take something square and make it fun. <laughs> uh, gotcha. And <laughs> it sort of changes up our sense of the rhythm, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, makes it a bit more uh, bouncy. Yeah, and sometimes it makes it sexier, and sometimes it makes it funnier, yeah. and sometimes it it just, um, you know, swings. If yeah. We should maybe hear an example of it. There's a perfect example. Um, I don't have a piano right here, unfortunately, but... Uh, That's okay, we can play the music. The last piece in the set is the wickedest of them all, mm -hmm. and uh, and it starts... Luckily, you can hear the unsyncopated version of a piece by Wagner, which mm. is the Pilgrim's Chorus from Tannhäuser.
and a, and a squarer, more devotional, solemn melody has almost never been written. Mm-hmm. So, and then you hear it, I play it, and then comes the swung, the stride piano version, where almost all the notes are against the beat. Uh-huh. This is the tune. It all seems very innocent so far. Right, right. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> you know, it totally transforms. If you're doing a ragtime, you know, always the bass line is oompa, 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 oompa. And then the right hand will be ba da da pa pa ba da 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 ba da 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 It's crazy. It's unbelievable. It's an amazing act of cultural appropriation, actually, <laughs> and, and, and especially like for those of us who you know we know how serious Wagner is. You know, it's not like one joke in the entire ring cycle of Wagner. Um, uh, yeah. And to take someone that serious and German and and uh, you know often quite pretentious, and to do that to him is so. It's such a joyful act. Yeah. Well, um, so I'm I'm curious. <laughs> like, I, okay, so clearly with this particular classical piece, you somebody had already sort of ragged it, and and was that the case for all of the pieces that you chose for the program, or did oh. did you did you put your own spin on some of the pieces? Did you rag things that had not been ragged before? I didn't. I, uh, it's very unusual for me to play a a transcription like that, by the way, of the original pianist named Donald Lambert, you know, somebody else's jazz version of something. But yeah. I fell in love with it when I heard it. And the rest of the pieces were rag... Start, I started with a Joplin ragtime that mm-hmm. is ragging already, uh, pre-ragged. And then I went up to a Stravinsky ragtime, which is like a cubist painting of a ragtime where he takes all the parts of it and then reassembles it in the wrong order. Basically, with a martini in hand, you know, and it's very funny and very wicked and witty kind of piece, um, constantly falling apart. So it's like syncopation upon syncopation, if you know, if you know what I mean. Wow. then I played a piece by William Byrd, which has a, it's a kind of a dance with several variations. Mm-hmm. And each variation gets more rhythmically wild. And the last one is like a Renaissance ragtime frenzy or something. A Renaissance so, ragtime frenzy. Yeah. <laughs> a crazy combination of words. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Thank you. 
attracted you to putting together a program like this? I mean, everything that I know about you has to do with with straight ahead classical music, but this is very much, well, it seems like a departure, but perhaps it's not. Maybe I'm just making assumptions about ragtime music and you can correct me. Uh, well, it, I mean, I don't play that much ragtime. I'm not a ragtime specialist, but I do like uh, making connections across music history that are unexpected yeah. or bizarre or that make you realize that the centuries aren't as far apart, you know, in the way that people have been thinking about music and how to make it interesting and what to do with it. You know, yeah. that hasn't – it's such a beautiful story. You know, mm-hmm. over over these centuries, you know, one of the terrible things about being a classical musician is that we're always or almost always stuck in the past, right? Playing old pieces, mm-hmm. usually by dead white European guys, and then, <laughs> right. but then, one of the compensations of that is that we get to travel, time travel, mm-hmm. you know, and that so that's what made me do it. And I, you know, there were a few pieces that maybe there's this Mozart jig that I play on this set. That sounds like Art Tatum. So hmm. even Mozart had this gleeful, evil quality when he was uh, sometimes you know, tossing the rhythm around and doing what gave him pleasure. And I wanted to follow that thread through yeah. history. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the Mozart piece? Well, it's a jig, uh, which is a fancy French way of saying jig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, a jig is in kind of a triple time often double, triple time, or triple, triple time. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's da 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 di da da di ba da 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 di da 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 One, two, three, four, five, six, one, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, sort of groups. And in this case, Mozart's also channeling a little bit of Bach, too. So mm-hmm. it's also a fugue. It's a jig. It's a dance. Oh. But there's also each voice enters separately. So the right hand plays first. And in the jig, so which should be one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. He puts in all kinds of oddball slurs and odd notes, um, so that you have a one, two, three, 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 constantly um, doing. And it sounds like something that Ella Fitzgerald would scat. Almost. Wow. Yeah. That's super yeah. cool. It's okay, and it's called uh, a jig or a jig. Do people yep, actually G I G U E? Do people actually dance to it? I don't know if you could dance to this yeah, particular I was gonna say jig. That sounds I don't, crazy. <laughs> I don't think he would have intended it. You know, like a lot of these late pieces of Mozart, he wrote them. I think at least partly for his own pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't care about all of us listeners anyway. He was just trying to test the boundaries and do something fun for his own. Yeah. amusement and kind of also just to see what could be done. Yeah. Like a lot of composers at that time, they loved, um, they wanted to go to Bach and sort of figure out, take, take some things from the genius of Bach and put it into their own music somehow. Yeah. And the great thing about Bach, you know, as long as we're talking about syncopation, you know, I grew up with switched on Bach and Swingle Singer's Bach. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Bach's notes sound amazing in jazz versions, you know, and somehow the, and because Bach is always constantly uh, rhythmically reinventing. Mm-hmm. He has these like streams of notes and there's always cross accents in it, you know, and that's what gives his music this great energy and sort of drive and sense of... Um, you never have nostalgia in Bach. In my, in my, you always have the sense of the te- things are happening in the now. I think it has something to do with 
his his sense of rhythm. Yeah. yeah. and this is a little bit of a departure from what we've been talking about, but having never been to a music festival myself and having never been to one of these recitals, I know that you're going to be doing a program where you're sort of moving through musical history. So are you literally going through and playing all of these pieces in their entirety? Are you are you talking to the audience in between and teaching them since since I know that that there there's sort of a, a an educational quality to going to one of the summer music festivals how does it work <laughs> I really don't want to um you know I think you're referring to this program that I'm doing which yeah. I, I hope doesn't come to resemble a music history lecture <laughs> but but then again some of my fond memories from you know college is my first music history appreciation class, and these professors would get up and they'd start to introduce you to the wonders of all this music that you never knew. Uh-huh. Right? And, you you know, you're 19 or whatever. I was 17, as I remember, something like that. And then and you're just listening for the first time to Stravinsky. You're listening for the first time to Monteverdi or whatever. you do. And it's an amazing story, actually, from from 1200 or so to, to the present day, how style changed and how a language evolved in various fashions. And and now we're in this weird period where it's hard to know if there even is style anymore. Yeah. I, I think that's that's really interesting because like, I, I often wonder when we say, now do we even have style? I wonder if mm-hmm. other points in history have, have asked that of themselves. You know, because you... You know yourself in reference to some other time, which, having passed, has this very clear identity and clear style. So, so I wonder about that. Well, I think probably every age has some anxiety about whether there is style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I, <laughs> right. think, I think I feel we especially have a, a right to be worried about it and to think about it. And mm-hmm. why, is it why was it important that there was a common language you know, for music? Mm-hmm common understanding of what music should sound like and what it should do and what function it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in popular music, we do still have a, a very strong sense of like music should behave like this. It should sound, these are the sounds. This is the style. This is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. in the, the classical world, which is a more niche and less um, lucrative area of the world, <laughs> I guess we have the luxury of being a little style-less. Yeah. That seems to be one of the great joys is bringing your own style to the music, your own your own expression to this music that's been you know played forever, and and uh, well not not all of it clearly, but but like maybe that individual expression has taken the place of sort of an overarching style. There, there is. Um, I mean. That's a complicated question to answer because in many ways what we're trying to do is capture what's written down already, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a whole school of thought that says basically the the task of us, of, of we musical performers, is to translate exactly what's on the page mm-hmm. into sound. But for me, that uh, that's a much more complicated transaction than people are willing, <laughs> are willing to let on. And, and the score is, you know... In the case of popular music, 
the music exists as a recorded item, right? Mm-hmm. We hear the song, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like the original version of, you know, pick a song, Stairway to Heaven. Okay. Right. And so then <laughs> that version, that original version is the song, right? Yeah. It's, there's not a score. I mean, you could get a score, but the score is secondary kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you imagine? And the, the written sheet music, you can buy it at a store, but people don't think of that as the right. Like Jimmy Song. Jimmy Page didn't sit down and write out a bunch of notes. He probably right. just played it, and then it was written down after the fact. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then we our whole business is built around these pieces that were painstakingly written down, you mm-hmm. know, in varying degrees of detail. But we have the score, and the score, unfortunately, the score is a miracle because it has a lot of information. But there's a lot of stuff that could never be written mm-hmm. in the score. That's so personal that could never be written in any score. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm always saying a score is a book and a book that's waiting to be written at the same time. <laughs> uh, oh, that's you know what great. I mean? That's great. And and that's something unique that we have as classical musicians, that beautiful thing where we're interacting with the, the written notes and trying to understand them anew, yeah. you know, for each generation. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Well, so, well let, let's bring that back to the, the, the ragtime then. What's the situation there? Was Was this composed music or are we talking about a jimmy page situation i mean obviously for the for the mozart and and the stravinsky probably composed music but not but not all of it i'm imagining i think i'm i not as i say not really a ragtime expert but i think that joplin's main way of profiting off what he wrote was selling sheet music to it right okay So I think that the sheet music played a much larger role in his life than it did, let's say, in Miles Davis's life, Mm. right? Where he was selling recordings. Uh I mean, I don't put myself out as an expert in jazz either, but there is a shift there. Right. Right. And And the invention of recordings is basically the shift, right? And that changed the whole notion of what the musical object was and is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a... Fascinating topic, like how 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 recording devices recorded music and and just devices themselves have changed our relationship to music and changed it from yeah, something that was participatory to to like about ownership. Yes. Yeah. There's a wonderful statistic that in 1906, more American homes had a piano than they had bathtubs. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Because before you had a stereo, how are you going to hear music? You know. Yeah. You need a you need a piano. You just sit down and play it, yeah. right? And now that we have stereos, we don't need pianos as much, right? Yeah. And uh, you're right. It is less participatory, which is a shame in some ways. Yeah. yeah it's a bunch of people. I, I don't know if you've seen um, people who are at solo dance parties. I can't remember what they're called, but they literally get together put on headphones in each other's presences and then dance to their own music, but together. (laughs) (laughs) I I haven't heard of that, but I've had relationships like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I I also wanted to ask you specifically, because we're focusing on the Music Academy of the West. Sure, sure. A couple of questions about the festival itself. So, So what to you makes this festival, among others, that you've been to unique? Well, one of the most amazing things about the Music Academy is that there are a million master classes uh, where teachers get up in public and teach the students, the fellows. Mm-hmm. And almost every class is full of a really devoted audience listening, 
Now, I can't tell you how many times I go to some town to play and they schedule a masterclass and like three people show up. Uh So it's incredibly rare to see, you know, week after week of these. And people are fascinated by the process of teaching. and, And it's a way of getting into the music, you know, how does it work? I think for them it's a way of really becoming familiar with the music starting and stopping, getting into the workings of it, and and yeah. seeing how students can improve, you know, yeah, uh, and that's beautiful and it's very encouraging. There's a very close relationship, I think, here between the audience, the d- the donor base, and and the students and the f- and the faculty, mm-hmm. uh, much closer than most festivals, and uh, it has a therefore a very nice uh, family feeling to it. Yeah, well, and I, I didn't even get around to the beach being one minute. Away, oh, that is, was going to be my last question: is is what, what do you do? What do you do for fun while you're there? Because allegedly you are also on on sort of a, a vacation ish. Yeah, I haven't really learned how to take a vacation, but I do. <laughs> you know, yeah, I go to Butterfly Beach and I uh, I swim. The water feels amazing. Nice. And uh, you know, I sit out and I have a little garden where I'm staying. I, I chill out. You know, I do California things. Nice. Yeah. I have a. I always when I get to California, I always think I have a, you know, I'm like oh, I want to live here. I have a crush on California. You know, it's, it's really <laughs> intense. Then after five or six days, I sort of realize we aren't meant to be together for the long term. <laughs> but, but it's you know, you always think oh, what might have been, what how it could have gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Dank, thank you so mm, much for being cool. on the Classical Classroom. It's been really fun to talk to you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. I'm sorry I was late, but uh, oh, it's you know, okay. I'm, I'm here, finally. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, of course. Take care. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org classroom. Follow us on Snapchat, YouTube, SoundCloud, Tumblr, Twitter. Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Make sure to subscribe to and rate us and review us on the iTunes. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Two Shirts Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing mugshot eyes. Many thanks to the good people over at the Music Academy of the West. Among many things, the Academy provided us with a recording of Jeremy Dank's recital, which we listened to in this program today. It was recorded by Barbara Hirsch at Opus One Mobile Recordings. Special thanks to Kate Oberyat for all of her help with these interviews. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>